If you have a Bible, you can open to Revelation chapter 2. We'll look at the end of the chapter. It's verses 18 through 29, and the text is also printed in the bulletin for you. Uh, yeah, Revelation 2, 18 through 29. Uh, one reason that we have the Scriptures at all, uh, the Scriptures, the Bible, the Christian Scriptures, is because people are seriously messed up. And it's not just, uh, you know, the people out there are messed up. People in general are messed up. It's, it's God's own people who are seriously messed up. We, the church, the people in this room right here, we are messed up. It's not that once you become a Christian and you join the church then you uh, no longer have problems like the rest of sinful, broken humanity. That's not it at all. We continue to have problems. We continue to have big problems. Even after coming to know Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And I would say history has made that abundantly clear. But in fact, it's the Scriptures that make it very clear. The Scriptures make it very clear that we continue to have problems after coming to know Jesus as Lord. The entire New Testament is written to believers and to churches who struggle in various ways, with fears and doubts and every imaginable type of sin. Every book in the Bible is written to help us with the big problems that God's own people continually face. It's usually problems of our own making because of our sin. There's something deeply encouraging, actually, about this, that the Scriptures are given to people like us. The Lord's well aware of the fact that His church is imperfect. That's putting it mildly, right? He's well aware of that. He's not surprised by you. He's not surprised by your problems. In fact, it's he who surprises us with the reality that in spite of who we are, in spite of our problems, he wants a relationship with us, even though we will never become perfect in this life. His mercy and his grace and his patience with people like us really is astonishing. And at the same time, there are some things Jesus simply will not tolerate to exist among his people. And his patience actually does have boundaries. And it's not because he's cruel. It's certainly not because he's impatient. Ultimately, he really is patient. But it's precisely because he wants what is best for his people. He wants to share with us everything that is his. He wants to share with us all that the Father has given to him. He wants to share with us his own everlasting kingdom and his authority, his very self. He wants to share these things with us because he wants what's best for his people. He's absolutely committed to the good of his people. So why would anybody test the limits of his patience? Why would we want to do that? I don't know. Let's talk about it. Let's read the scripture. Uh, Let let me pray first. Father, as we continue in worship, we pray that you would open up our ears to hear you, that you would grant us eyes, spiritual sight, to be able to see you. You've made yourself known in the person of your Son especially. And here we have his very words before us. We pray that you'd make us, us attentive and responsive, that even these, uh, these difficult words would be good news to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And to the angel or messenger of the church in Theatira, write, The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, 
who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Theotira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers... And who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this is the fourth of seven letters uh, that we find in Revelation 2 and 3. It's the middle letter, right? Jesus is addressing uh, the angel of the churches of these places. The angel, we've talked about that. The messenger really is what that term means. And uh, I think it's best understood that he's addressing the leaders of the church, the pastors, the ones who preach the gospel in the churches. And so he's addressing these, <clears throat> these pastors in these churches in Asia Minor, which is now present-day Turkey. And this is the central letter. And it's the longest letter, and we could probably say it's the focal point of the seven letters. And its theme is very important in the overall book of Revelation. It's very important. You could say almost that I think that the theme of this letter really is kind of the theme of Revelation. And the theme of this letter is it's a letter about the judgment and the authority of Christ and about how his faithful people come to share in his own judgment and authority. In some ways, it's really similar to the letter just before it, which we looked at last week, where Jesus addresses the threat of false teachers in Pergamum. Uh, Here in the church in Theotira, the the disease is more advanced than it was in Pergamum. Uh, It sounds like it was more obviously centralized around one person in particular, very strong personality there. And then also, the, the time Jesus has already given to this person to repent, is expired. It's not a call for this person to repent. He's saying, your time to repent is over. And now he is coming in judgment. Not uh, once for all at the end of history, sort of coming in judgment, but clearly and explicitly exercising his authority to make things right in the church there. He's coming in judgment to that church. So the, the woman's name probably wasn't actually Jezebel, since that would have been sort of equivalent modern day, uh, you know, like naming your son Hitler. It's like a poor taste, right? You don't name your daughter Jezebel. It's probably not a real name. Jesus gives her a symbolic name, right? It's a symbolic name given to this woman who uh, is it's, it's as if she were Jezebel reborn. So it really helps if you know a little something about the original Jezebel, and you can read about her in First and Second Kings, 
And there's a lot to be said about her. Uh, so just give sort of a brief biography. But um, Ahab, Ahab, you may know that name. He was the king of Israel. He was the king of the northern kingdom. He was literally the worst, literally, explicitly called the worst. When he was introduced in 1 Kings 16, it says, Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And then when his life is sort of given a recap later in 1 Kings 21, it says, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. So you get the sense that Jezebel is the one pulling the strings behind basically the most abominable king that Israel has ever known. She really shouldn't have been the queen in the first place. Uh, she shouldn't have had the power that she did, and she abused the power that she had. She, she abused her power, and it was to the ruin of God's people. Jezebel used her power, her position, her influence to corrupt, this is the main problem here, to corrupt the religion of God's people, promoting the worship of false idols, false gods, making God's people really just like all the other people around them, all the nations. Everybody's worshiping Baal and setting up Asherah poles and all these things that everybody else is doing, she got Israel to do through her influence. The 450 prophets of Baal. This is a big, one of the big stories in the Old Testament that you may be familiar with. Uh, the great prophet Elijah de- defeated on Mount Carmel. Right? Those prophets were put to death with the sword in, in 1 Kings 18. They'd been sponsored by Jezebel. It said that they ate at her table, which uh, implies probably not just support, but like a real camaraderie, like a companionship. And in 2 Kings 9, um, when uh, God starts turning things around, Jehu is this new king. He's been anointed. He's a better king than Ahab. And he came in judgment, and Jezebel met a grisly end, as did her son Joram and all the, the house of Ahab and all the people who were closely associated with her. Right? God's king exercised his authority for the good of his people, and he wiped out everybody who was closely associated with Jezebel. Though he did give people a chance to repent, this king, Jehu, did. In fact, when he came for Jezebel, he called out to her servants to see who was with him and not with Jezebel. And when two of her eunuchs answered, these are people who are living very closely to her, they answered, he had them throw her out of the window to her death. Right? That's what repentance looked like for them. These were people who had been very close to Jezebel, but when they repented, they, they came back to the side of the true king. <clears throat> so, you could say a lot more about Jezebel, but there's some backstory for our passage, and you probably already see the several parallels. When Jesus addresses the messenger or the pastor in Theatira, he says, I have this against you that you tolerate. That woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So again, as we've seen uh, through these, these letters, the responsibility for the care of the church is with the pastor. He's the one who has tolerated this person's presence. It means he should have stopped this woman already. Why hadn't he? 
How does this sort of thing happen? How does this situation get to the point where it's as bad as it is? We're not given all the explicit answers to those questions, but uh, as one pastor friend of mine has pointed out, it's probably not like this woman just strolled in one day and said outrightly, let me interest you all in some false gods and sexual immorality. <laughs> right? That's something that has to come in subtly and, and slowly as she gains more influence in the community. Uh, <clears throat> she probably gained that influence slowly based on personal charisma, maybe even physical seduction. I think you can read that <clears throat> in this, um, this letter here. She might have promoted uh, maybe some early form of Gnosticism. It's not spelled out what her false teachings were, but we can get a clue here or there. Uh, might give us an idea. Claiming to, she, she claimed to have some kind of knowledge of the deep things. Right? The deep things, probably secret knowledge. The deep things of God, which Jesus actually exposes as being the deep things of Satan, not, not of God. In verse 24, <clears throat> so she might have taught something like this. We can, we can imagine this. We, this is believable, uh, historically speaking. Uh, those who are truly enlightened, those who are truly set free, those who are truly powerful and have real spiritual authority, they know this, these deep things. That what you do with the body, the outer person, who you're associating with, and the, the, the idol temples and the sexual immorality and stuff, that doesn't matter. The outer person stuff doesn't matter. The body doesn't matter. What really matters is the inner person, the spirit. Right? You can imagine that uh, she would say something like that, and once she gained a following with some kind of teaching like that, then it becomes easy to sell people... Um, on the idea that they could engage in illicit pleasure, pleasures. Why not? Or they can participate in the idolatrous social customs for economic advantage. That makes sense, right? So we've looked at this <clears throat> concept before, but uh, G.K. Beale, this commentator, says that Theatira was an economic center with a particularly large number of trade societies or guilds each of which required members to participate in idolatrous practices to retain membership. If you wanted to be a metal worker, a silversmith, or whatever kind of guild you were part of, there were like idolatrous customs that you had to adopt in order to show that you belong and to continue to belong, to retain your membership, right? To participate in the economy, to make a living. So Beale says, practically, it would have been difficult to engage in commerce in the city without being part of such an organization. And so the pressure on Christians living in the city to engage in such practices would have been substantial. And then here comes this charismatic woman, attractive, influential, intelligent, claiming to be a prophetess, claiming to be someone of significance among God's people in the church, having a word from the Lord that it's okay it's okay. You just go ahead and do whatever works for you. Jesus won't mind. Except Jesus does mind. He minds very much. He is not at all a fan of idolatry or sexual immorality. The New Testament addresses those two sins together repeatedly. You see those, they're just stuck together. They go together, right? <clears throat> the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, a very important time in the history of the church made it very clear that these were things 
idolatry and uh, sexual immorality. These are things that God's people were to avoid. It says in Acts 15, um, this is the letter that the apostles, after they had made this decision, they sent it out to the churches, especially in the Gentile areas of the empire. It says, this letter says, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. <clears throat> and these are all like things that you would do in association with the, the cultic practices of the Greco-Roman Empire. <clears throat> uh, if you keep yourselves from these... You will do well, that letter from the apostles said to the churches. Theatira would have been the recipient of the letter. And it seems that Jesus refers to this letter in our passage when he says, I do not lay on you any other burden. And he uses the same language that the apostles used in their letter. Right? So Peter Lightheart is a commentator, and he he says this about that. The Council of Jerusalem dealt with the issue of Judaizing. The big question was, do all these Christians in Gentile churches, do they have to become Jews? Do they have to adopt all the Jewish practices? Especially, do they have to be circumcised in order to be part of the true church? Lightheart says uh, that Gentiles were not required to be circumcised or to keep dietary restrictions or purity rules, but the council also determined the limits of participation in Greco-Roman culture and worship. They didn't have to become Jewish. But the point of this letter was they, they couldn't remain Gentiles either. Gentiles are spoken of in the New Testament as a third party or past tense. You were that. You're not anymore. You're different from the nations. You're different from the people who are surrounding you, the Greco-Roman peoples, with all their culture and with all their practices. Just like God's people in the Old Testament, now were, they were led into idolatry by Jezebel, to become just like the people around them and to lose their distinctiveness and their relationship with Yahweh as his special people, now the church in Theatira was being led by this woman to participate in all the customs of Greco-Roman culture and worship and just become like the nations, become like the Gentiles again. The very thing they're not supposed to do, very simply. But as we talked about last week, Jesus is jealous for his church. And um, when someone like this would beckon his people away from him, he doesn't tolerate it. He doesn't tolerate it. Perhaps the pastor of the church had tolerated it because he was intimidated. That's not an excuse. It might be an explanation. Maybe he was intimidated. The original Jezebel was terrifying. And if she wanted you dead, you'd be dead. And even the great prophet Elijah after he had defeated the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, he, he was terrified of her. Maybe her following had grown to become so substantial that the pastor thought that he was all alone and couldn't offer any resistance. What's he going to do? He doesn't, has no power anymore. But he wasn't alone. And just like God was patient with Elijah when Elijah was a coward and he fled out of fear and said, I'm the only one left, I'm all alone, what can I possibly do? God was patient with Elijah, and he reassured Elijah. Jesus made it known that he was still there, and he's seen enough. 
So now the king was coming in judgment. And that means he's coming to fix things. He's coming to make things right. And it wasn't going to be pleasant for this self-styled prophetess or for any of her, her children, which is probably not just literal, literal physical children, but disciples, right? It's not going to be pleasant for those intimately associated with her and with her teachings and, and her practices, those who'd been unfaithful to their Lord who would not repent. It's not going to be pleasant when Jesus comes in judgment. He, he's still giving them a chance to repent. Those who are associated with her... <clears throat> But the time's up for her and for those of her household. And this is why Jesus says he's doing all this. This is the center of the passage. This is the focal point of this letter. It says in verse 23, um, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to you, to each of you according to your works. So Jesus is... He's the one in verse 18 introduces himself as he's the one who has eyes like a flame of fire. He, that means he has the Holy Spirit in his eyes. The one who searches and knows all things. Even the hidden things. The, the hidden things of God. And the one who purifies and refines God's people. The Holy Spirit is in Jesus' eyes. <clears throat> it says in Proverbs chapter 20, a king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. Right? So when Jesus comes in judgment, he doesn't just observe. He doesn't make, just make observations. Um, he doesn't just make a statement about what is good and evil. He doesn't do that. Imagine a judge sitting on a bench issuing a proclamation, this is right, this is wrong. <clears throat> it's more than that. When Jesus comes as judge... He sees, he knows what even we cannot see or know about ourselves, and there's a fire in his eyes. There's a passion to make things right, to separate out. That's what winnowing means, to separate out the evil from the good until only the good remains. This is the kind of judgment, the kind of authority that he exercises as the king of an everlasting kingdom. He's the one, again in verse 18, whose feet are like burnished bronze, burnished, uh, glowing bronze. It's, it's been purified and refined in the fire, right? So Jesus has been tested. Jesus has been tempted in every way, and he did not sin, and he held his ground, and he stands, and he stands forever as the king of an everlasting kingdom. His faithfulness through all of his sufferings, through all of his trials, that shaped him, and it proved him to be perfectly suited to rule the kingdom of God forever. Executing God's own judgment, wielding God's own authority in the world. And he does that as he winnows evil from the church, as he, as it says in Psalm 2, as he rules with a rod of iron, even breaking bits off of his church like false teachers and their followers, smashing the church apart sometimes. <clears throat> Again, it says in Psalm 2, um, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And this is, this is the prophecy of Christ, his resurrection, after proving himself faithful even to the point of death on the cross, God raised him from the dead and declares him that you're my son, you're the king. The son of God is the king of, of God's kingdom. <clears throat> and, um, and it says, continuing in Psalm 2, 
Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's what our passage is quoting from, Psalm 2. It might sound to us like merely destructive, violent power, like Jesus just comes in and just starts trashing everything, because it's not the way that he likes it. But it's not. It's not just destructive, violent power. Jesus wields the power of judgment not to dash something in pieces like something that is going to go out in the garbage. Right? A clay vessel that uh, is no longer useful, you dash it in pieces and throw it in the garbage. That's not it. It's a potter's vessel. A potter is somebody who, who makes pots. So a potter's vessel is something that didn't quite turn out right, and it gets broken in order to remake it. Right? So Jesus breaks apart his church through judgment in order to make the church new, in order to make things right, the way it really should be. His judgment doesn't just bring evil to a violent end. It does that. But it brings a new beginning for the good of his people, for the flourishing of his people. He alone is the true king who deserves the right to wield that kind of authority because he was faithful to God the Father even to the point of death. He's proved faithful in everything. Therefore, he's been entrusted with everything, with all authority in heaven and on earth. And in his mercy and in his grace, he shares that authority with us. It says in verse 26, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. This is that Psalm 2 language. But Jesus is applying it to us. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. So we are given authority, like Jesus' authority, to break in order to mend. We're given Christ's own authority to be exercised in the church. We talked about this some last week. We don't need to go over the whole thing again about church discipline, right? Church discipline is something that we're called to do for the good of the church. We don't have some big case like this Jezebel and her, her followers in the church right now. Not that I'm aware of, should be aware of it. <clears throat> uh, I don't think we have anything like that. So we don't need to really talk about church discipline a lot right now. But it's something that we are called to do for the good of the church, and sometimes that means breaking off little bits or even big chunks of the congregation in order to to renew the church and make things right. And understandably, this could be a deeply unsettling process. Totally understandable how unsettling that can be, where people look at the turmoil, people look at the big changes taking place with a sense of worry or a sense of uncertainty. These things are frightening. These things are serious. <clears throat> but Jesus helps us to exercise his authority well to do it with his own motives, to do it with his own goals in mind, to keep his works because they're his. It's not just the right thing to do. He helps us to do these things with his own spirit when we're faithful to him and responsive to him and we look to him. Someone like um, this Jezebel person in Theatira, 
is looking to make a name for herself, right? Everybody knows that. She's looking to make a name for herself. She's looking to grab influence and power for herself. She's looking to make herself important and great. And she might even make promises to others to bring them along with her, right? To empower others with a power that's like hers, but they always end up with a smaller slice of the pie. They're just really serving her vanity. Really, her followers are being used to boost her. But Jesus grants a full share in his own inheritance. The authority that he's received from his Father, he grants it to us. He doesn't use us to boost himself. He exercised his authority in this. As he says in John's Gospel, he was empowered to lay down his life for us and to take it back up again for our sake. And there's no power-hungry false teacher who's going to do anything like that. Only Jesus. <clears throat> he says later, in, his, in, uh, in chapter 22, in Revelation, that he himself is the bright morning star. You wonder what this morning star bit is about. I'm not sure I have uh, the perfect explanation of it. But he says he's the bright morning star. And I think that basically means that he's the power in the heavens that's announcing the coming of the new day. The bright morning star is Venus, right? You can see it sometimes, the only star in the sky while the sun is, is uh, still is coming up. It's a, it, I think it's a description of his power residing in the heavens, announcing the, the coming of a new day. And the shining beauty of his power and the glory of the new day that's rising that he is announcing is that he gives himself to us. He says, I will give you the morning star. He's talking about himself. He gives himself to us fully and without reservation. Like no power-hungry false teacher would do. He doesn't keep back any special privileges for himself. Because he withholds nothing from his people, not even his very self. If he's giving himself to us, how could he be holding anything back? And if we hold fast to him, and if we persevere in faith, and we do not deny him, and if we respond, just that being responsive to him, when he calls us to repentance, to follow him, then he belongs to us. We are his, and he is ours. And it's like a couple in marriage um, that share everything, you know, everything that's ours becomes his, and everything that's his becomes ours for the sake of our union, for the sake of our relationship, so that it would last forever and be glorious. Jesus has taken all our brokenness and all our sin, everything that belonged to us, he took it. He took it upon himself, and he died with it at the cross so that we also could be dead to it. And everything that he has ever received from the Father, he's shared freely with us. His righteousness, his spirit, his own mission, his inheritance, everything. Everything he's received from the Father, he's shared with us through our union with him. And through no other way than our union with him through faith. And as we are faithful and responsive to him alone, we also rule together with him in his kingdom and with authority like his.
So let's follow his lead and not um, test his patience, even if, even if it takes us through some pretty tumultuous, frightening changes. We can rest assured that his judgment is what's best for us because we know that our king is fully committed to our good. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, as we read um, this passage and as we read all of Revelation, we are impressed that uh, it is not only about your victory, but about the way that you share your victory with your people. And you share it in surprising ways, ways that we would not have chosen. You call us to follow you through paths that are difficult. You call us to things like church discipline and exercising authority and judgment in the congregation in ways that are unsettling sometimes. And we pray, uh, first of all, that we would never have to exercise judgment in the way that you've called the people in Theatira to, um, that none of our members would uh, go so far off the rails. But if they do, we pray that you would help us by your Spirit to be faithful to you and responsive to you, to seek your kingdom above all things because you're what really matters to us, and we would not test your patience, the limits of your tolerance. We pray that you would keep us close to yourself and teach us what it means to trust you and to be faithful to you. And we pray that that really would be the trajectory of all of our lives, whether we're currently or or in the future involved in matters of church discipline or not, that, that you would help us to trust you and to be faithful to you. We pray in your name. Amen.